Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you need to learn how to defuse an active, an armed nuclear bomb, would you prefer to get one lesson or five lessons on the subject? I would imagine that most of us would want to get a few lessons because would want to practice, because getting it wrong would be very bad news for us and for everybody else. Well, to switch the metaphor a little bit, if you're dealing with high-voltage power, in Brazil we had three heavy-duty, three-phase, 220-volt power coming to our house. If you're dealing with that kind of power... You want to know how to deal with it properly. You want to be properly instructed because if it's not hooked up properly, either the power doesn't flow or it flows wrongly and you get very hurt. Well, two examples or analogies to come to the point that there's a reason why the catechism takes time to walk us slowly through the section on the sacraments. You remember that we use the map metaphor, if we're going to add one more metaphor to this afternoon. And there's kind of a blown-up section because this part of the teaching of Scripture has been messed up over the the course of the history of the church in the last 2,000 years, and it's been messed up very badly. And so the church wants to take the time to very carefully instruct us in the scriptural understanding of the sacraments. That's good. We already talked about sacramental language and and the nature and usage of sacraments when we were dealing with baptism in Lord's Day 27. But now we're going to get a review, and we're going to see it applied to the Lord's Supper. My professor of Old Testament at seminary, Dr. Van Dam, he often used to say, repetition is the mother of learning. He was right. Sometimes it helps to just repeat things. It's good for us. So here we go then into Law's Day 29, and the question is, are then the bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? Now, we have to understand that this is a kind of whatever question for us. We know the answer already, don't we? But in the 1500s, this was a dangerous question, because Christendom, for many hundreds of years, officially, and even more hundreds of years unofficially, had understood that, yes, in the Mass, the host and the wine actually become really the flesh and the real blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to be asking this question was seen as very subversive. It was a dangerous question to ask. If you asked it in some parts of Europe in the 1500s, you could be imprisoned or even killed. The Catechism answers in light of the teaching of Scripture, that this kind of language, the very strong language, the sacramental language of the Scriptures, should not be interpreted to mean that there is actually a change in the elements of the Lord's Supper. We know what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26. He was with the disciples on the last Passover, and he takes bread. He didn't take the lamb. He took the bread because it has to be something unbloody. This is going to be the last sacrifice that the Lord's Supper will point to. 
So he takes the bread, and he says, this is my body. He takes the, the, the wine, he says, this is my blood. He uses very strong sacramental language. He seems to identify the bread with his body and the wine with his blood. If we read through the early centuries, the church fathers, we, we see the church fathers echoing the scriptures using very strong language, which makes it sound as though the bread is actually flesh, human flesh, the human flesh of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's always kind of dangerous to go looking in the church fathers to back up your position because you can back up almost any position if you just choose the right church fathers. But it must be noted that the same fathers who, the church fathers being the the pastors and the theologians, uh, the well-known pastors and theologians of the early church in the early centuries, if, if you look at the ones that spoke very strongly about the Lord's Supper and you dig into their writings, you do find in many of them from time to time an acknowledgement in black and white that for all the strong language they're using, the symbols remain symbols. The signs remain signs, and that the truth is appropriated spiritually. But nevertheless, as the church history went on from the time of the apostles and to the early church and through the centuries, through the Middle Ages, over time, the church came to understand, in large part, that when the priest or the person officiating at the Lord's Supper when they said the words of consecration or the prayer of consecration, then there was an actual change from the bread to real human flesh. It didn't look like human flesh. It didn't smell like it. It didn't have the texture of it. So there were some physical differences, but basically, essentially, it was human flesh and human blood, the human flesh and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the year 1215, at the Fourth Council of the Lateran in the city of Rome, the church officially adopted this understanding of the Lord's Supper. What we're eating and drinking is real flesh and real blood. And because of that, with that come all kinds of things. It means that it doesn't matter if you believe or you don't believe, when you ingest the bread, when you ingest the wine, Christ is going into you. And that leads to all kinds of other questions and difficulties. So the church basically adopted what we could call the sacramentalist position. And in the sacramentalist position about the Lord's Supper, the sign becomes the thing signified. The sign and the thing signified are identified. They're the same thing. And that's why in the tradition of the medieval church, the Roman church, the elements are, once they've been consecrated, and now it's really Jesus, it's him, they're lifted up, and then people bow, or they kneel, or they worship. The elements, the host, that consecrated bread, which is now the body of Jesus, is paraded through the streets. We don't see that so much in Canada, I don't think, but in Latin America, it's very common to have processions through the streets in which the host, the body of the Lord Jesus, as they understand it, is brought through the streets, and you have to acknowledge, you have to bow, you have to worship that piece of bread, which is now a piece of Christ's body. And then when it's not being paraded through the streets or being lifted up to be worshipped and and bowed before, the consecrated uh, bread is kept 
in a little receptacle, or in a fairly large receptacle, called a tabernacle. It's kept there because it's holy. It's, it's no longer just regular, everyday bread. In fact, uh, if you know people that speak French, a lot of swear words in French are derived from holy things of the church. And one of the swear words in French, at least in, here in Canada, is tabernacle. That's what people say as an expletive or as an exclamation. And it's a reference to the Roman Catholic's uh, way of keeping the host stored in the church. Now, the Reformation rejected this. The Reformation rejected this sacramental and priestly system which identified the sign and the thing signified, which said that by mere eating and drinking, you're ingesting grace just by the act itself, and that Christ was being sacrificed every time the Mass was being celebrated. We'll get into that in Lord's Day 30 next week. We'll get into that in more detail. But then the Protestants, they had trouble figuring out how to say things in a better way, how to say things in a more scriptural way. And unfortunately, in all the messiness of the, of the Reformation, Reformations are really neat and tidy. They happen over a course of time, and people uh, are engaging them in different levels of engagement and, and commitment and understanding. And that's what happened in the Great Reformation as well. It was very messy. And so we have a number of different streams appearing in the Reformation. First of all, we have the, the Lutheran understanding of the sacrament. And Luther didn't want to go with the, the transubstantiation, that the substance of the bread is transformed into the substance of Christ's physical body. He understood that that wasn't, uh, that wasn't, that wasn't scriptural. You couldn't base that on scripture. But he did want to keep the understanding that something important is happening when you take the Lord's Supper. Jesus Christ is really there, and he really is nourishing us. And so the solution that Luther and the Lutherans came up with was to say this. Well, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is true man as well. As God, he is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And because the church for many centuries has confessed that you can't separate the two natures of Christ, therefore, wherever his Godhead is, wherever he is in his divine nature, he is also in his human nature, which means that his body somehow is everywhere. It's omnipresent as well. And because his body is omnipresent, when you're holding up the consecrated bread in the Lord's Supper, then because Jesus is God and Jesus is everywhere, then also his human nature is also where that bread is, in and under and around and with the bread. And the technical term, for those who like technical terms, is the ubiquity of Jesus' human nature. Ubiquity meaning that it's everywhere, omnipresent. Well, there was an attempt to try and navigate away from the misunderstanding of the medieval church but it wasn't satisfying to many. And there was a bit of a reaction against that, especially from Zwingli, who was a pastor in, in Switzerland, in, in Zurich. And he said, no, that's, that's, 
That's too Roman Catholic. That's still uh, too much like transubstantiation. And so he kind of overreacted. He said, no, it's not the body of Christ. It's just bread. It's just wine. That's all it is. It's just a remembrance. All we're doing is getting together as believers and saying, yep, let's drink some wine, eat some bread, and let's remember that 2,000 years ago the Lord Jesus died for our sins. That's all it is. Don't get all mystical about it. Don't start making stuff up about that the bread is really Jesus' body. It's just a remembrance meal. And so Luther would say, this is my body. That's what it says. And Zwingli would say, no, it's not. That's how they argue back and forth. So Zwingli was very uncomfortable with all the things which, which a lot of Lutheran churches took over as well, that they would, they would raise up the elements and they would, they, would, they would kind of worship them. This is the body of Jesus. Things were very raw, and there were raw feelings about the Holy Supper in the 16th and the 17th centuries. Nowadays, it's not a big deal for us when the pastor, when the minister uh, is administering the Lord's Supper, he raises the bread. And nobody understands that as an act of worship. Nobody understands that, oh, he's raising the bread, and, and now we have to bow or worship the Lord Jesus in the bread. It's not a big deal for us because we don't have that understanding. But back then... It was a big deal. Just to raise the elements was seen as very superstitious and ruinous. So in 1529, Luther and Zwingli got together and they had, a, they had a little discussion, a theological discussion. Didn't go very well. I think many of us know the story. Luther wrote in chalk on the table, Hoc est corpus meum, this is my body in Latin, he wrote it. And he just kept insisting and banging on the table and saying, that's what Jesus says. This is my body. This is my body. That was his, basically his counter-argument to most of what Zwingli was saying. And of course, Zwingli was overreacting the other way. It didn't go well, and they couldn't even shake hands. Luther refused to shake hands when they left. Now, we have to give some grace to these brothers. It's very easy for us to judge them, sitting here in the 21st century. But at the time... They were in the midst of conflict, and, and they were concerned to get things right. And, and Luther and the Lutherans, they were concerned about the holy things of God. And, and he was consistent with his position. One time when the, the Holy Supper wine was spilled in the church, because people would come up to the front, and they would, they would drink it from the chalice, the, the cup from the minister's hand, and somebody bumped it once, and it was spilled, and he leapt to lick up the, the spilled wine, because he thought, well, that's, that's Jesus' blood there. Not, not like the Roman Catholics say, but, but it's still Jesus. It's his blood. And we're going to treat it as a holy thing. In fact, at least one pastor was brought up on criminal charges in Germany for spilling wine. It was seen as an act of uh, disrespect and dishonor and blasphemy. And then on the other side, you had the Zwinglian position. And they also had sincere godly concerns. They, they were concerned that the supper would not be turned into superstition and, to, and into idolatry. So it's important not to be simplistic or to be casual and dismissing one or the other position. But we do praise God that through the teaching of men like John Calvin, uh, many of the Reformed churches found was basically a mediating way between Luther and Zwingli, which respected the real presence of Christ in the sacrament, but didn't identify the sign and the thing signified. So the Reformed position 
was that Jesus is really present, but it's a spiritual presence, not a physical presence. I'm going to try an example here. I don't know if it's going to work, but I can try. Uh, imagine a, a man is up on the oil patch. He's been away from his wife for a long time, and then his cell phone rings. And he says, this is my wife, right? He says to his, the guys that he's bunking with in the bunkhouse, he says, this is my wife. And, but he's holding his cell phone. Right? That's sacramental language, isn't it? He's attributing to this piece of plastic and glass something, a meaning which is far greater than the actual device. He says, this is my wife. Now, now the sacrament, sacramentalist would say, yeah, this is your wife. You know, you can take her to the company dinner, put her on the chair beside you. Seems a little ridiculous when we use this example. And the memorialist, the more Zwinglian position would be, well, don't think you can talk to her on this device. Just see her number on the screen and just remember that you have a wife and that one day you are married and that one day you will see her again. Just think about her. Again, the example makes it seem a little absurd. Uh, the theology and the theologizing is anything but absurd, but I'm trying to make it very simple for the children. The reformers, all of them, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, they were all struggling to understand scripturally what is going on in the supper. And reaction caused counter-reaction. And thankfully, our brother John Calvin uh, came to a position which might have kept the unity of the church if only Luther and Zwingli had both talked to him. In fact, at the end of Luther's life, he read a, a treatise of John Calvin on the Lord's Supper in 1540, and he said, you know what, I, I like what Calvin says about the Lord's Supper. If, if only his position had been more widely disseminated, then all these problems that I have with Zwingli wouldn't have happened. It's interesting that if you read Calvin on the Lord's Supper, if you read his institutes and other writings, the treatise on the Lord's Supper, for many modern evangelicals, it sounds very Roman Catholic. Calvin is very strong on the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. It's very strong sacramental language that he uses. And Zwingli as well. We know Zwingli's position mainly through what he didn't agree with. He, were, he was always overreacting to, to Luther. This is my body. And Zwingli saying, no, it's not. The Lord Jesus also says, I am the vine, but he's not a vine. He says, I am the door, but he's not a door. So we, we know Zwingli mainly through his negative teaching. But towards the end of his life, these are some of the last words that Zwingli wrote about the Lord's Supper. If you pay close attention, it sounds very, very cons uh, similar to what we confess in our confessions and in our Lord's Supper form. These are the last, some of the last words that Zwingli wrote about the Lord's Supper. We believe that Christ is truly present in the Lord's Supper. Yea, that there is no communion without such presence. We believe that the true body of Christ is eaten in the communion, not in a gross and carnal manner, but in a sacramental and spiritual manner by the religious, believing, and pious heart. So towards the end, both Luther and Zwingli did tend towards the position that we have from John Calvin uh, and others in our confessions and, and in our Lord's Supper form. And here's the whole point. It's not the sign that does anything. It's what it points to. We, if we can go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, it speaks about baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, don't look at just the physical sign, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. That's what a good sacrament does. That's what a good sign does. It lifts you up. It draws your attention. It focuses your faith on the real thing, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you're looking for your salvation from. And if we turn to another text, which is mentioned in our catechism, which is footnoted, we can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We read the first few verses there. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all ate the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Well, what is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, well, things happened to the people of Israel, but those things had meaning far greater than the actual physical events. When they went through the Red Sea, that was a picture of baptism. That through water, God separates us from the world of sin and slavery. When they went through the desert and food fell from heaven, it wasn't just physical food, but it was a picture of the bread of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. When they had water which came out of the rock, it wasn't just physical water, but it was water that was pointing to a a reality which is far greater, that their life, that their thirst of their souls was satiated only by the Messiah. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus teaches in the New Testament. When we get to John chapter 6, and he's done the the miracle of, of multiplying the bread, And then he goes across the sea, and then the people are looking for him because they want more free bread. They want to fill their stomachs. This is awesome. We don't have to work. We can just eat this free bread. And the Lord Jesus says, you're looking for bread for your stomachs, but you should seek bread which will feed you unto eternal life. He says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, but they died. I am the bread from heaven. So all of the All of the thrust of Scripture is to draw our eyes away from the physical signs and to point us to the truth, the reality, the Lord Jesus. That happened in John chapter 6. In the next chapter, John chapter 7, the Lord Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the rituals was at a certain day of the feast, the last day, that they would have a a water ceremony, speaking about the fact that the people depended on God to send rain and water, reminding them of their time in the desert when they, they, they needed God to provide water for them in the midst of the desert. And in John chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So once again, all of these elements, all of these rituals, all of these celebrations, all of these ceremonies, always had one goal and one goal alone, to point to the reality which is in Christ Jesus. That's the focus. And so the catechism says, over and over, it's not the sign. Don't get fixated on the sign. Don't get caught up just in the sign. It's the power that it points to. Don't confuse the sign with the thing signified. Because that's absurd. Imagine a man, he comes to church, he gets married. They exchange rings. Then he hops in his car, leaves the wife in the church building, and he goes home looking at his rings. He says, oh, wow, I'm married. 
I am married. This is my, this is my marriage. You know, in, in French, they call it an alliance, a covenant. In Portuguese as well, this is, this is my marriage covenant. This is my marriage. What's he doing? His wife, is in the, his wife is the reality. This is just a symbol. And without his wife, it's kind of meaningless, isn't it? This just represents something. Go back, man. Get your wife and enjoy the real relationship that this piece of metal symbolizes. The piece of metal is not what you fixate on, but the meaning behind it. To go back to our electricity example, because I think there are some electricians in the congregation. Our homes have all kinds of wire, but most of us don't fixate on the wires. We're interested in the power which comes through them, which literally lights up our lives. Let's switch the metaphor again. If we're driving along the highway, we need gas. We see a sign that says gas. What do we do? Do we park next to the sign and wait for the tank to fill up? We're waiting a long time. We drive on to the reality to which the sign points. So I could multiply the analogies, but the fact is, is that we don't expect power or magic from the bread and wine, but we lift our hearts to heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and we understand Christ to be using sacramental language, attributing to the sign what belongs to the thing signified. Now in John chapter 6, and we, we looked at John 6 last week, he begins the chapter saying, if you believe, you have life eternal. He ends the chapter saying, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have life eternal. Believing, eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ is the same thing. Putting bread and wine into people's mouths does nothing unless it is accompanied by true faith in Christ. Then there is life. The power is not in the signs. The power is in Christ and his spirit. That's basically what question answer 78 is saying. And then we move on to 79 very quickly. And we ask, well, why do Christ and the apostles use sacramental language then? Why do they use such strong language? And the answer is that God, that Christ speaks in this way for a very good reason. He wants to teach us one thing. He wants to assure us of two things. Number one, he wants to teach us. He wants to teach us how real it is how necessary it is that we need the supper. We need to be fed with true food and drink for our souls. And the picture is very simple. The picture is this. What happens if you don't eat? Well, after three days with no water, you're probably going to end up dead. After three weeks without food, you're probably going to end up dead. You need food. You need water. And that's the message of the supper, isn't it? You need Christ. You need him like you, more than you need breath. You need him because he is life. And if we understood a little bit about the supper, we would long for the supper more. Is your soul hungry? Is your soul thirsty? Do you say, Lord Jesus, feed me or I die. Fill me with your life. Fill me with your grace. You are my life. Your crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. Oh, that God would give us more hunger and more thirst for Christ and for the supper. Is, this, is, this, is it true in your life that you're hungry? The Lord's Supper is a visual representation of the gospel. It is the word made visible. The Lord is drawing you a picture every time the sacrament happens at the front of the church. 
And the picture that he's drawing tells you what is real every Sunday, not just on the Lord's Supper Sundays. And this is the picture. This is what the picture tells us. You need Christ. You need to feed on Christ. You need Christ to be your life. So do you? Do you feed on Christ? Are you feeding on the Word every day? Do you live like you really need Christ? Do you begin your day with Bible reading? You get up, roll out of bed, roll onto your truck, and zoom off to work. What does it say about your need for Christ, your hunger for Christ? Are you really hungry? Or are you spiritually anorexic? You know, almost every problem in our lives, in our families, in our churches would be largely resolved if we would put into practice what we say we believe about the sacrament, that we need more Christ, that we need He who is the Word of God. The psalmist says it. God says it through the psalmist. He says, listen, be hungry. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. So that's the need. That's the first thing he teaches us. Then he gives us assurance of two things. The first assurance he gives us, and that's in the second paragraph of question or answer 79. The first assurance he gives us is how real it is. How something is really happening at the Lord's Supper. Through the working of his Holy Spirit, we share in his true body and blood as surely as we receive with the mouth these holy signs in remembrance of him. At the supper, the Lord Jesus brings us into his banqueting house. His banner over us is love. Christ embraces his bride. And an embrace does something, doesn't it? You know, children, when, you, when you've done something wrong and you're kind of feeling rotten and your mom or your dad is upset with you and you, and you say, I'm sorry, isn't it awesome when they say, I forgive you? And then they give you a hug. And the hug does something, doesn't it? It makes you feel better because something's really happening. There's love that is being communicated in that embrace. I think we adults know that same truth. An embrace or a hug is just a physical gesture, but it can communicate so much love, so much forgiveness, and so much encouragement. I'm not just speaking about these man hugs, these side hugs. I'm speaking about a real one. The intimate, loving embrace of the one flesh union between the bridegroom and the bride, that's happening at the table. And the Lord Jesus is saying to his bride, he's saying it to us, he's saying, we are one. And as he embraces us, something is happening. His love and his life and his grace are just pouring into us and nourishing our hungry and thirsty souls. And it's awesome. Well, that's the first assurance. And what's the second assurance? That's the last paragraph there. The second assurance is this, that all his suffering and obedience are certainly ours, as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. You see, there's identification happening in the sacrament. At the first Passover, the people identified with the lamb that they killed. They ate it. It became part of them. You and us, we and you. Your death is our death. You died the death we deserve. We participate in your blood because of your blood. On the houses, the avenging angel will pass over that house. 
And Christ is our Passover lamb. Christ is the lamb of God. And we are identified with him in the sacrament. His death is our death. We participate in his blood. What does that mean? Well, it means that his death is our death. Look at Romans chapter 6, which we read. Romans chapter 6. His death is our death. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? And that means that his payment is our payment. Look at number, verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. When Jesus died, we died. His death is our, is our death. And if you've died, sin has no grip on you anymore. That's true of Jesus. That's true of you who are in Christ Jesus. See, the one who has died has been set free from sin. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but, but the payment has been made. That's why when Peter preaches on Pentecost Sunday, he explains that Jesus went into the grave, but that death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't grab onto him. Why not? Because Jesus is sinless. He paid for all the sins of his chosen ones. It's all done. There's no sin left. And he himself is only perfectly obedient. So death had no hold on him, had no reason to keep him. And what's true of the Lord Jesus is true of us. We and our loved ones may die in the Lord Jesus Christ. We may temporarily be in the grave, but death has no right to say to us, you are mine and I'm going to hold on to you forever. Can't. Because Jesus... And we are united. His obedience is ours. His life is ours. You see, the identification of, between the, the sacrificer and the sacrifice in the Old Testament was limited to the death and to the shedding of blood. But the sacrifice to end all sacrifices is different. This sacrifice died and then came back to life. First time it ever happened in the history of redemption. What happens to him happens to us. He died, we died. He rose, we rose. That's why Paul, when he's persecuting the church, meets the Lord on the way to Damascus, and from heaven the Lord Jesus says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Because what you do to my bride, you do to me. We're one flesh. And so we see that unity, that union, also in Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Look at verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus, we are united. We are united in one flesh marriage between Christ and the church. And he is the last Adam who has perfectly kept the law of God and every thought and word and action, every moment of his life. And all of that righteousness by law belongs to us. Now think about that. Remember that, that very, very poor woman that I used as an example the other, the other day? She's in terrible debt. She can't even pay the interest payments. 
And the bridegroom comes and says, listen, I've paid all of your debt. Well, that's just the first part. The second part is, I'm marrying you, and all of my wealth is your wealth. Everything that I have belongs to you. That's the Lord Jesus and the church. And it's, it's a truth which is so stunning and so shocking that it's hard for us to really believe. And we need to drum it into our heads and into the heads of our children. Look at Lord's Day 23 for a moment. Just flip back a few pages. And look at question answer 60. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in, in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and still inclined to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me. Now, now look at this. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. What does the Bible say? What does the church confess? What does the Holy Supper teach and assure us? This is what the Supper says. Believer, when God looks at you, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ. When God looks at you, he can't remember a time that you ever did anything wrong. When God looks at you, he can't remember a time when you ever said anything which displeased him. When God looks at you in Christ, he can't remember a time that any slightest thought ever passed through your mind which was not holy, righteous, and pure. That's what the supper is telling us. That you have the righteousness of Christ as if you went to the cross. As if you suffered hell. As if you paid the debt. As if you kept the law of God perfectly all of your life. Every moment and every minute and every second. That's what it means to belong to the Lord Jesus. To be united with him. And that's what the Holy Supper is telling us. God sees us in Christ. And praise be to God that he does that. Because if he didn't, there's no hope for us. A while back I went to the legislature and got a tour from the speaker himself. And he just walked right into the premier's office and we stood behind that desk. I couldn't have walked in there by myself, but the speaker said, he's with me. And that opened all the doors. And when we enter into the holy throne room of the universe, we walk right by those cherubim that are the guardians of God's holiness. The cherubim that say, sinner, get out of here. Sinners die in the presence of a holy God. We just walk right by them. And we enter boldly in that new and living way which the Lord has opened up for us. Because the Lord Jesus says to about us, he says, She's with me. That's my bride. She's with me. That's true. And that's real. It's as real as the supper which we eat and drink. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're going to sing hymn 79 now. 
And one of the stanzas says this, You only are true life. To know you is to live the more abundant life that earth can never give. O risen Lord, we live in you. In us each day your life renew. The supper proclaims the gospel. It says your sins, your death is gone. It doesn't exist. And in their place is perfect righteousness and eternal life in Christ Jesus. In the supper, the Lord Jesus says to us, he says, Beloved, see the gospel with your eyes. Smell the aroma of the gospel in the wine. Taste the gospel with your mouth. Feast on the gospel as you feast on the elements. The gospel is true. The gospel is real. It's really a thing. Just as real as the bread you chew and the wine you drink. Amen.